This September, for the first time in over 50 years, the White House will convene experts on food, nutrition, and health. And the fresh produce industry will have an important seat at that table. They want to solve hunger by 2030 and then dramatically reduce diet-related disease by 2030. That's really, really hard to do. So this is really designed to set out kind of a blueprint and a strategy that goes beyond just this administration. So it's going to have things that Congress should do. There will probably be recommendations for what state and local governments can do. I think they'll probably put out recommendations for what the philanthropic community can do. So it's really more of like a unifying blueprint. Today, we'll hear from IFPA Vice President of Nutrition and Health, Molly Van Loo, about this event and about the importance of these conversations and the policies that can result from them. This copyrighted podcast is presented by the U.S. Highbush Blueberry Council. The opinions and views shared by those of non-paid guests on the business of blueberries are those of our guests and do not represent the views, positions, or policies of the USHBC. The blueberry industry is like no other, passionate, resilient, and innovative. This podcast is your source for the latest information on the management, markets, research, and technology related to blueberry production. This is the business of blueberries. Here's your host, president of the U.S. Highbush Blueberry Council, Casey Cronquist. Welcome back to another episode of The Business of Blueberries, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to the blueberry industry. Today, we're going to take a look at the current state of nutrition and health, and we're going to hear from a leader in Washington, D.C. about the upcoming White House conference taking place this September. Joining me is Molly Van Loo. Molly currently serves as Vice President of Nutrition and Health for the International Fresh Produce Association, the largest and most diverse association serving the fresh produce supply chain. Her work centers on increasing access and consumption of fruits and vegetables and improving overall dietary quality through effective public policy. Prior to her work in the fresh produce industry, Molly spent time on nutrition, health, and education policy at the Pew Charitables Trust, the National PTA, and on Capitol Hill. Molly, welcome to the business of blueberries. Great. Thank you, Casey. Happy to be here. Well, I am so glad you're here. I have so many questions about this subject myself. Uh, ever since the White House announced that they were going to launch this summit, and so as I was, you know, preparing for this and thinking about all the questions, I'm just trusting that our audience is going to have as many questions as I do. And we're just grateful you're here to help us uh, kind of understand a little bit about where this this might be going. But before we get started, what I thought would be good is just get to know you a bit more. Maybe you can share a little bit more about your bio and what led you to this type of work and your passion for health and nutrition policy. Yeah. So I've been um, with the industry for about five years, Um, have been in DC for almost 15, which is hard to believe, but grew up in South Central Pennsylvania, um, in Apple country actually, and was an ag kid. I had dairy cows, was in 4-H, but knew I wanted to kind of come to DC pretty early, um, at least in college, as I started to to work on these issues and came to D.C. in 2008 to work for my hometown congressman. And I was really focused on working on education policy because I, well, I still believe in the importance of um, access to a good education. But when I got to D.C. Um, and I was working on the Education and Labor Committee, which my boss was a member of, um, I also had jurisdiction over 
the WIC program and the National School Lunch Program. And this was at a time when the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act, which was kind of the Michelle Obama era, was making moves to improve the school meal program. And I got kind of totally sucked into this idea of the role of and the power that the federal government can have to kind of change consumption patterns. So I got really excited and that kind of drew me to nutrition. And then eventually I knew I wanted to work for an industry. But when you work on food and nutrition, there's only a few industries that you can feel really great about every single day. And fresh produce is certainly part of that. So um, I was really grateful to be able to have the opportunity to move over here and work on it every day. Well, we're glad you're there. And yes, that passion is important. The power of the plate, right? And policy. Yeah. So many intersections here uh, that we could go down. But I think, you know, the current state of nutrition and health, as you kind of look at the context that you kind of described your own experience in, as we get ready for this upcoming White House conference, maybe you could talk a little bit about the state of nutrition and health and what, what are those big issues in Washington that are, you know, making a conference like this make sense now. And I know this is, you know, like 50 years or so since the last time, but what are we trying to address here now? What's taking place that makes this a big deal? Yeah. So Casey, you had pointed out that there hasn't been one in 50 years. So there has been an effort over the past few years. So kind of pre-COVID, there was an effort to hold another nutrition conference. But to kind of go back to that first one, the origin of that is at the time, members of Congress were, and they still do this sometimes, but It was, I think, more common back then where different members of Congress would go to their colleagues' congressional districts and kind of see, you know, how things worked and what was going on with their constituents. And in the 60s, that happened. And some folks went down to the Deep South and saw really, really severe malnutrition in a way that we don't see today, what you think of, you know, today in under-resourced countries or developing countries. And it was a really big wake up call for members of Congress that, you know, in 1960s America, there was kind of no excuse to see such severe hunger and malnutrition. Um, So that was really the impetus for that first conference. And it was focused solely on addressing severe hunger and malnutrition. And the major programs came out of that, like the SNAP and food stamp program, universal school meals, the WIC program. There still is hunger, but that really largely is attributed with addressing kind of the severe malnutrition and hunger that we saw in the country at that time. 50 years later, things have evolved and we have now, um, you know, overweight and obesity and really a dietary quality crisis. So the data is pretty clear on this. 75% of Americans are overweight or obese. 80% of our healthcare costs, not just federal government healthcare costs, but all healthcare costs are related to diet-related disease, which is just wild. And then for fruits and vegetables in particular, only one out of 10 Americans are meeting their own um, dietary guidelines, recommendations for fruits and vegetables. So um, we have our work cut out for us, certainly, and it impacts everybody. It's not just low-income Americans. So There is a push um, within the past few years from a number of members of Congress to hold a second White House conference. And the effort, as with most things, kind of got put on hold for a little bit. But I think that that was actually valuable because we saw with COVID that 
our country's reaction to it was even worse than other places because of our overweight and obesity rates. So I think it's brought kind of a renewed sense of purpose to this work. So Congress funded it this past year, um, gave money to the White House to execute it, and then President Biden announced it. So it will be this September. Um, and the three focuses are hunger, kind of closing the the gap and the loop on um, the last remaining kind of hunger that we see in our country, um, and then focusing on nutrition insecurity, which is dietary quality, essentially, and then physical activity as well. Yeah, it seems there are some things about, you know, what you're describing the the previous conference accomplished that sets a stage for what you might expect in outcomes from a conference like this. And, you know, I'm just curious from your perspective, you know, what areas you think they're going to want to tackle that have real meaning to the future of our, our nutrition program. And then I want to talk a little bit about the dietary guidelines themselves, but maybe we'll start there. Yeah, we're really excited about this. And we think that this is a huge opportunity. But as I'm sure everybody's aware, it's an interesting time in DC to get things done. And we see these pockets where like people do come together, but there is a lot of disagreements, right? So whether or not we'll see these wholesale changes in, I mean, the SNAP program and the school meals program, those are really huge revolutionary changes. I don't know if we'll see large scale. There are a couple policy ideas where I think they really do have legs. And that is produce prescriptions and like food as medicine concept. I think that that there's a huge opportunity for that one, particularly as the current president is really focused on cancer because of his son succumbing to cancer. So I think that that will probably be a focus in this of kind of how does diet relate to cancer? It would surprise me if it wasn't. The first lady is focused on veterans and military families. So I wouldn't be surprised if there was um, a focus on that. There's a huge conversation about equity right now. So there will certainly be an equity lens in making sure that whatever you know policies and programs and recommendations come out of this have the ability to serve everyone. What I think is smart that they did is they set a 2030 guideline and said that they want to solve hunger by 2030 and then dramatically reduce diet-related disease by 2030. That's really, really hard to do. But you know what we're certainly pushing for is putting forth policy and priorities that can meet the majority of Americans by 2030. I think a lot of the things that you're going to see come out in federal policy around dietary quality start to chip away, but we're not kind of making a population change um, in the way that we need to. So this is really designed to set out kind of a blueprint and a strategy that goes beyond beyond just this administration. So it's going to have things that Congress should do immediately or until 2030. They'll probably put out some executive orders that they will do immediately. There will probably be recommendations for what state and local governments can do. I think they'll probably put out recommendations for what the philanthropic community can do. So it's really more of like a unifying blueprint. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about our responsibility as an industry to these processes. But before we do, I want to take a quick break here for our crop report. The North American season is well underway. And as we get further into the summer period, we're welcoming more and more of our regions onto this report. So here, once again, is your blueberry crop report. Yes, it's time for your blueberry crop report, an update on crop conditions and markets from important blueberry growing areas. Today, you'll hear from Rex Schultz in Michigan, 
Juan Soria Morales in Mexico, Doug Kramer in Oregon, and Brian Sakuma in Washington. This was recorded on July 27th, 2022. Good morning. This is Rex Schultz calling from uh, Michigan on our weekly crop report. And right now, Michigan, we're uh, full blast right now. Production is starting to really come off real good right now. The northern counties, the Allegan, Ottawa area, they've been experiencing a little bit of dryness. They did get a little bit of rain over the weekend, about an inch of rain, much needed. And um, chances of a little bit of rain today, but overall, the growing conditions have been really good in the southern counties, Van Buren County. Down here, we've had sufficient rainfall. The crop is looking real nice. Quality is real good. We have very little pressure from any type of insects at all. So we're real happy with that. Some a little bit of Japanese beetles showing up in some of the fields, but overall, uh, SWD is being taken care of, and we're just happy with that. Uh, we look for a good week this week and next week coming up. Other than that, that's about it for Michigan. The production is just ramped up, and both the harvesters now are going uh, for fresh as well as processed now. And processed is uh, ramping up as well. So we look to have a good week and a good next week on uh, both fresh and processed. And that's my report. Hi, good morning, everybody. My name is uh, Juan Soria Morales. This is the week 29th, and this week marks the beginning of the season 22-23 growing, growing season for blueberries for Mexico. Right now, the production is very low and will begin to increase around September. Our acreage is around 9,160 hectares in different parts of the country. During the week 29th, Mexico has exported a total of 183,000 pounds of fresh blueberry to the world. From this amount, a total of 177,000 pounds were sent to the United States with a total of 2,000 pounds, representing 1.5% corresponding to organic blueberries. Up to date, Mexico export volume of fresh blueberry has declined in a 31.72% if we compare that information with week 28. Talking about frozen blueberries, Mexico export, exported 63,000 pounds with an increase of 12.7% compared to the previous week. We have some draft problems in some of the regions where we go uh, blueberries. Uh, maximum temperatures right now have been registered between 95 and 105 degrees Fahrenheit in the main growing areas of blueberries. We have not any effects on the production because of the temperature so far. As I said at the very beginning, the harvest is significantly low during these dates. And in September, uh, we'll have the increase. We have so far the rainy season. Thanks God, temperatures are getting lower now. And it's helping, I hope, we help people that is in the problem with drought. Thank you so much for your attention. Hi, my name's Doug Kramer from Oregon, and I'm giving the crop report for uh, July 27th, and it's a hot week here in Oregon. We have temperatures in the upper 90s, lower 100s, and so we're picking as fast as we can pick. We still have some good quality fruit to ship, but certainly some of the fruit 
is uh, going to the processor instead of fresh at this point in time. Next week, they're saying our temperatures are going to cool off, and I think we'll get back to normal. But this week, the machines are going strong. The hand pickers are going hard. So things are going about as fast as they can go in Oregon right now. With the hotter weather, we got less pest and disease pressures. And so if there's a good news, that's the good news. And uh, it'll certainly move our season along as we go forward. That's the report for Oregon today. Hopefully, I'll see you next week. Thank you. This is Brian Sakuma from the state of Washington on the western side. Um, we're getting into some hot weather. Eastern Washington um, is running pretty hot. They're probably finishing up with Duke starting some Draper. Um, Western Washington, we're just starting in the northwest here. We're, we're in the initial uh, Duke harvest right now and a little ways off from doing some Draper. We're supposed to be getting in our area up to 85, 90 degrees. I think up in Whatcom, they may actually hit over 90 degrees. Um, this should start the fruit starting to ripen a lot quicker than normal, catching up a little bit. And that's the report for Washington. Well, thanks so much to our busy growers who take the time to participate in these reports. As a reminder, you could go to the new USHBC website where you'll find our data and insights center to see more data of what's happening in the blueberry industry. We've added a lot more features to this dashboard, including a USDA shipping price and movement, retail category performance, Nielsen monthly retail sales report, and much, much more. So make sure you go check that out at ushbc.org forward slash data. So let's get back to our featured conversation with Molly. Molly, let's talk a little bit more about our responsibility to this process as an industry. Again, IFPA representing everybody, North Bank and Blueberry Council, USHBC representing blueberries. I think we're all going to have kind of a different thought going into both the conference and these guidelines. But from your perspective, what should the industry organizations like ours be thinking about? What should our growers be thinking about? You know, what kind of opportunity does this represent? And what action steps would you think could be taken in order to put the best foot forward for the industry prior to the conference? And of course, you know, working together as we move forward on the dietary guidelines. So I'm kind of mixing two things up there. But if we could just talk about the White House first, that would be a place to start. Yeah. So I think just kind of having an interest in it is really important and having a seat at the table. And I know that the White House did listening sessions throughout the summer and we had really good industry representation of kind of telling the story of industry. And I think just kind of making the case of how kind of nimble the produce industry is and how ready they are and able to serve kind of every part of this country. But we can't do it alone is our message. We really need some demand creation. Our, our responsibility certainly is to make the best, most flavorful product. It's certainly, you know, extending perishability, making it accessible to people. But I think that often when we talk about access to fruits and vegetables and specifically fresh fruits and vegetables, 
cost always comes up and affordability. And it's a really dynamic, complicated question. It's not just cost, right? Like just this weekend when I was in the store, I was like, I will hold the produce department up to like many different other parts of the store right now in terms of value. But particularly for low income consumers, the perishability of it becomes uh, a fear, right? Like if I don't use this, if you have to make every single dollar of your grocery budget count, there's a fear with perishability. There's a fear of like, do I need to focus on calories and making sure that my family's not hungry versus nutrition? Like everybody knows fruits and vegetables are good for them. So I think we need to continue to innovate and make sure that the most flavorful product, uh, most nutritious product is available. But we really do need help from the federal government in creating that demand creation. So there are things like we would like to see a dedicated fruit and vegetable benefit in the SNAP program, the way you see in WIC. You see really great outcomes in terms of what's being purchased. The WIC fruit and vegetable benefit recently tripled, and there are a ton in our initial kind of findings that we're seeing. There are a lot more berries that are being purchased than before because families were getting $9 a month to spend on fruits and vegetables for kids. That doesn't go far when you triple that you have a little bit more spending power, of course. And I think it is it is complicated for our industry because those food industries that don't make <laughs> products that are universally good for people, it's easy for them to come out, easier for them to come out. I'm simplifying this and say, you know, we're going to make this product healthier. Or we're going to produce less calories or fewer calories. We're going to put fewer calories out into the world. But for us, it's like, <laughs> we, we'd be happy to grow more product, but we need people to buy it and to eat it. So I think that just being active in this process, everybody knows fruits and vegetables are good for you, but kind of telling our overall story and really, you know, showcasing the need for um, some additional demand creation from the government. Well, and and when you say demand creation, I mean, we're a promotion and marketing organization. So I'm curious from your perspective, like the takeaway from the conference for that demand creation would come in what form? What would you imagine? What would be your ideal hope for what the conference might conclude would be a way to generate that demand? Yeah. So, and I know that this is not everybody, you know, believes that the federal government is the solution to this. And there's a a fine line with agriculture, right? You don't want to just be growing just for the government, right? And then um, that can be a a challenging place to be too. But there's a, a number of levers. One, the school meal program, continuing to expand that and make sure that more kids have opportunity there because they're getting a half cup of fruits and vegetables every single day, making sure that the reimbursement rate's high enough that they can afford, you know, a wider variety of fruits and vegetables, the fresh fruit and vegetable program. There's great opportunities with that too. Expanding that, as I said, the fruit and vegetable benefit for SNAP, huge opportunity there. I really do think though, the next kind of frontier is this produce prescription reality um, or produce prescription concept. We're seeing it happen in states, individual insurers already. But one of the, the challenges we have at the, the federal government is the resources at USDA are finite. We see with the existing fruit and vegetable incentive programs, they're really wonderful. But one, they're really hard to implement in traditional retail. And it's getting better, certainly in traditional 
retail, but that was kind of originated as a farmer's market program. But we know 90% of SNAP benefits are redeemed at retail. So if we want to change consumption, we're going to have to find a way to do it in traditional retail. But adding an additional benefit isn't cheap when you're talking about how many people are on SNAP. But when you look at healthcare and making fruits and vegetables a benefit, like just as you would access diabetes medication, the resources are there. And there's certainly an ROI. Insurers are definitely paying attention to that. And the federal government is finally paying attention to that. And I think the other benefit um, of this is that USC is wonderful and I work with them all the time, but their mission is to support the American grower as it should be. And we kind of put all of our faith and effort into looking for consumer outcomes <laughs> at USDA when that's not ultimately who they're there to serve. At HHS, at Health and Human Services, it is about healthcare outcomes. And the great thing about our industry is that we will benefit from that because everything that we produce and grow really contributes to dietary health. So we have nothing to fear, I think, by moving over to HHS and when we're talking about expanding access and consumption. So another thing about that is like, because it's really complicated healthcare, right, <laughs> in this country, but by focusing on Medicare and Medicaid first, which are obviously targeting seniors, and then Medicaid is targeting low-income consumers, what we're hoping to see there is once the federal government has that data around the outcomes of those that participate in produce prescription programs, then you'll see private insurers following suit. And then you have the potential to reach everybody. And we know, right, 75% of folks have overweight or obesity that leads to diet related to disease. So, you know, making sure that private insurers are vested in this as well is really important. I want to take a quick break here for our Blueberry Boost. We'll be right back to this conversation in a moment. But for now, here's USHBC NABC Director of Business Intelligence, Joe Vargas. Thanks, Casey. According to the most recent Nielsen data, which is available through the end of June, the entire blueberry category, which includes both fresh and frozen blueberries, is up 3% in dollars, but down 7% in volume for the second quarter of 2022, when compared to the same time frame in 2021. Food costs, particularly berries, continued to rise in quarter two of 2022 as a result of inflation and later than usual harvest timing and inclement weather. Since Quarter two of 2021, the average retail price of a pound of blueberries has climbed by 9.3%, or 46 cents, retailing at $5.36 per pound. The average price per pound for all other berries has also grown slightly, rising 1.6%, or 6 cents, from quarter two of 2021 to $3.68 per pound. Some crucial data for fresh blueberries. Sales are down 8% in volume and up 3% in dollars compared to last year. Fresh volume dropped is offset by increased retail prices for fresh blueberries. In quarter two of 2021, average retail price per pound for all fresh blueberries was $5.23 per pound, which has climbed 9% to $5.69 per pound in quarter two of 2022. Some highlights for frozen blueberries. Sales are down 7% in volume, but up 2% in dollars compared to last year, similar to fresh category changes. Frozen volume is negated by increased retail costs for frozen blueberries. In quarter two of 2021, the average retail price per pound for all frozen blueberries was $3.35 per pound, 
which has grown 10% to $3.67 per pound in quarter two of 2022. For more category insights, please visit our Data and Insights Center on our website, ushbc.blueberry.org. Thanks, and back to you, Casey. Thanks, Joe. Now back to today's featured conversation. So, Molly, you talked about food as medicine, and we were just talking a little bit there about, you know, kind of the bipartisan nature of these initiatives. But what controversy do you see that comes up in this concept of food as medicine? Because it seems like a no-brainer, right? You've got this massive issue with healthcare costs for our country. We've swung from a conference in the 60s that was about malnutrition, and now we're talking about a conference all these many years later, and it's about, you know, how do we handle our dietary issues as a society. So this food as medicine concept continues to come up as being a solution that obviously we're very vested in as the berry industry. And so I'd, I'd just like to get your take on where this is really going to go, because it seems like something people can get behind. Maybe the Obama administration was trying to make it cool in a different way. Now you've got this kind of more administrative process taking a look at this. Are we going to get there with this process? Are we going to find that people are going to start, like you described, prescribing? And maybe you could share with our audience a little bit more about what that concept's about so that people can understand what the food is medicine, you know, prescription concept is really intending to accomplish. Sure. So, uh, you know, a big part of it is going to be how we execute it logistics wise, right? Because it makes sense of of what we need, but how you actually have technology in place to do it. So the general idea is that, and it happens different ways in different places. So in some places you're going where it's currently happening in pilot form, you're going to your primary care physician and they're usually always doing the screening for food and nutrition insecurity. So right now it's usually, they try to get a sense of whether or not you struggle to access foods in your home. And then if you do, and you are at risk or have diet related disease, they write you a prescription. And they typically partner. Um, In some cases, there's like a food pharmacy right in the healthcare center or the hospital. Some are partnering with traditional retail. Some are partnering with like DoorDash to do deliveries. So there's lots of different models. And I think that it can make it complicated, but that's the only way in the United States that it's going to work, right? We're so diverse in so many ways that we can't have a one size fits all with this. So we'll need to kind of figure out what that technology looks like and whether or not it does truly require, you know, going to your primary care physician or are there other ways that we can kind of streamline that. But if you're already being treated for diabetes, and we see really good outcomes in the diabetes community, so that's where most of these programs start with, because folks just respond really quickly when their diet changes with diabetes. So that's where you see a lot of the progress right now. So I do think that once the ball starts rolling and, and more of these programs come out, I think there's huge potential for it. Certainly other food industries are going to be looking and saying like, if we're starting with fruits and vegetables, because that's usually just the easiest, it's what people are under consuming. There's a lot of challenges around kind of cultural relevancy. Like it's hard to prescribe specific foods, again, because we're such a diverse country. Some people don't eat certain things. So fruits and vegetables are usually a pretty safe bet because most cultures are inclusive of fruits and vegetables and you can kind of choose the fruits and vegetables that work for your family. 
But I do think other food groups will probably, you know, want in on this. And certainly there are many, we can't just survive purely on fruits and vegetables. But um, so certainly you there's- You can go seafood. pretty far. You-, you can go pretty far, I know. <laughs> you can go very far. And if we, we started with that. So certainly I think other food industries are going to want in on it, certainly, and rightfully so. Whole grains are under-consumed in this country. Low-fat dairy is under-consumed or dairy is under-consumed in this country. But once you get into to grains, into dairy, some are better for you than others. So that gets kind of complicated in terms of implementing. So fruits and vegetables are universally believed to be kind of the easiest thing to implement. You know, people aren't really talking about it yet, but if this really takes off the way that it could, I have a hard time believing that pharmaceutical companies are not going to start to care, right? So right now, folks are like, oh, I think it'll be okay. But like, I don't know how they don't care at some point. So we'll see. Well, I appreciate your optimism. I share it and look forward to working with you and your team as we move into the September month. And, you know, I speak for our growers, certainly our board leadership. You know, we appreciate what IFPA is doing in terms of, you know, intersecting with this administration to help lead the way. And if there's, you know, more we could be doing, whether it's, a, you know, any future listening sessions, I think those are all done, but we still got the farm bill, any of these intersections that we can be bringing the value that I think our growers have invested in over many years to be at these conversational tables, you know, you know how to reach us. And again, credit to you for staying on top of this as we move into the September conference. I know you've been kind of helping guide our industries thinking around all this. And and I certainly appreciate it and look forward to seeing what these outcomes are, because who knows, you know, it's an interesting time going into these midterms, but I am optimistic. This is so bipartisan. You know, we should all care about this issue and and I look forward to seeing where this takes us. So I appreciate your time today. And is there anything else you want to share before we let you go? I don't think so. This was great. I hope it was helpful. I appreciate your having me on. I look forward to having you back. So we'll have to do a, a kind of like a deep dive debrief of what we find coming out of the conference. Absolutely. That'd be great. All right. Well, look forward to that next time. And I appreciate your time today. Molly, thank you so much for being on the Business Blueprints. Thanks for having me, Casey. Well, that's it for episode 107. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week with more innovation, collaboration, family, and hard work right here on the Business of Blueberries.